Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. Today, I'm excited to bring you a conversation about the current state of our institutions, why our trust in them is falling, and what we can do to restore that trust. Joining me on the podcast this week is Yuval Levin. Yuval is an American political analyst, academic, and journalist. He's the founding editor of National Affairs and the director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. In this episode, he comes onto the show to discuss his newest book called A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. In the show notes for the podcast this week, I have included a link to buy the book, as well as some good book reviews and a few other interviews that Yuval has appeared in to discuss his book. And you can check that out at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Americans are living through a social crisis, writes Yuval Levin. Quote, our politics is polarized and bitterly divided. Culture wars rage on campus, in the media, social media, and other arenas of our common life. And for too many Americans, alienation can descend into despair, weakening families and communities, and even driving an explosion of opioid abuse. Left and right alike have responded with populist anger at our institutions and use only metaphors of destruction to describe the path forward, cleaning house and draining swamps, unquote. In his new book titled A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream, Yuval argues that issues we're facing today stems largely from weakened institutions— And the path forward rests in strengthening institutions rather than tearing them down. Yuval, I'm looking forward to diving into this book with you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. To begin in your book, you start by laying out the differences between symptoms of a problem and the problem itself. You say that people have pointed at multiple symptoms of our problem, whether it's the opioid crisis, like I mentioned beforehand, or inflated government or falling religiosity. And you say that these are symptoms of a greater problem, but these aren't necessarily the problem itself. So you say the problem is weakened institutions. So my question is, why institutions? What makes you so sure that the problem stems there? Well, I would say weakening institutions are a key facet of the larger problem, and they're the facet that we tend most easily to overlook now. So I wouldn't suggest they explain everything about this broad social dynamic that we're living through today. But I think that they explain something that we tend to miss and that by missing, we leave ourselves perplexed. Uh, institutions are the forms, the structures of what it is we do together. When we don't see them, we have a tendency to think of American life as just one big open space that's filled with individuals who are having trouble connecting. And so we need to build bridges and we need to break down walls and cast unifying visions. All these things I think are important. But when we don't see that we only really live our social lives through forms and structures that give us roles, that give us relations to one another, 
that allow each of us to understand our place and what we might do, then we fail to see really why it is that our society now seems to be experiencing a sense of dissolution and collapse in so many different ways. When we think about what institutions are and do and how, they, how important they are as formative forces in our lives, from the family and the community, the church, to politics and education, then we can come to see what it is we seem to be missing when we complain about symptoms like isolation and alienation, like polarization and social dysfunction. So institutions are falling apart, you say, or at least most of us feel as if we no longer have access to stable and healthy institutions. Uh, And we see this in polls, I would say largely, we have falling trust in religious leaders and the church as an institution. Uh, For example, Gallup has conducted an annual poll on confidence in religious institutions, and they found that in 1975, 68% of Americans had a great deal of confidence in the church, but now it's at a mere 36%. Similarly, Pew Research has found that three quarters of Americans say that their fellow citizens trust in the federal government has been shrinking. They also found that about two-thirds, so 69% of Americans say that federal government intentionally withholds important information from the public that it could safely release. Uh, 61% say that the news media intentionally ignores stories that are important to the public. Um, So can you prove to me that this is more than just feeling or um, where's the concrete proof, I suppose, that people aren't just freaking out about problems that are being over-sensationalized in the media? Yeah, that's that's certainly a real worry. And when you see a problem that's this widespread, it certainly seems like it would be hard to explain it one by one, right? Institution by institution. Certainly, there are some particular examples of corruption or of incompetence that might drive a kind of loss of confidence in one institution or another. But when it seems to happen everywhere and at the same kind of accelerating pace, it obviously suggests that there's a broader problem going on. I think one way to think about whether this is just an impression or whether it speaks to something real is to see that it expresses itself in the personal lives of a lot of Americans as a sense of isolation, alienation, even rising suicide rates and opioid abuse, alongside its expressions in our culture and in various forms of cultural conflict and polarization. There is surely something real going on there. That's not just a reaction to, uh, to, to a broadly shared illusion. The question is what? And I do think that To just point to individual examples of incompetence or corruption doesn't cut it, because those are always with us. Those are always problems uh, in any major institution at any time, and they are today too. But I think there's an additional problem, and it has to do exactly with the way in which institutions are formative. What does it really mean to trust an institution? It means, among other things, that we believe the institution forms trustworthy people, that the people within it who do the work that it does whether that's educating our children or defending the country or enforcing the law or providing us with a good or a service, that those people do that in a reliable, responsible way. The institution has an ethic that promotes a certain form of integrity. And we lose confidence in an institution. We lose the sense that it forms people to be trustworthy. And so we lose our trust in them. And I think one of the things that's been happening in the recent decades in America is that we've come to think of our institutions less as formative and more as performative, less, in mold, less as molds of our 
character and souls and more as platforms for people to stand on and perform. So that in our politics now, a lot of people behave as though Congress and the presidency are just stages for political performance art. You see the same thing in some elements of American religious and civic life. You see the same thing in some of the professions. People use the institutions they're part of just to build their own brands. And that inherently makes those institutions much harder to respect and to trust. I think that transformation from formative to performative institutions is a big part of what has changed specifically in 21st century America and what's behind a lot of the challenge now to uh, our confidence and trust in institutions. Well, let's talk about that a bit more, because I think one of the institutions where this is most obvious, uh, like you said, is in politics and the performance factor that has really taken over in government. Since C-SPAN, the legislative branch increasingly sees its job as having less to do with legislation and more to do with activism. Congressmen and women, I think, uh, across the political spectrum, use their platform in Congress to complain primarily about Congress instead of focusing more so on legislating responsibly. Uh, We take this or we see this taking shape on social media, of course, as well. Largely, uh, people campaigning for Congress rely more heavily on social media presence. And uh, we're also seeing a higher number of celebrities even campaigning for Congress as well. Um, And I can't help but think of that moment after the recent State of the Union address where Pelosi tore her copy of Trump's speech. And it wasn't even really animated by emotion as much as it really was just a stunt. Uh, There was a video that surfaced afterwards of Pelosi basically practicing (laughs) to rip the speech pages before the address. Um, So I I think, you know, it's easy for us to understand perhaps why uh, performance has infected Congress. But on the flip side, it's arguable that having the curtain drawn back to reveal political processes has helped or could help curb corruption and also help politicians remain accountable. So what would you say to that? Yeah, I think there's a balance to be struck. There's a balance to strike here between transparency and uh, and effectiveness. And you need some transparency in any major institution. Otherwise, it easily can become corrupt, especially a public institution. But an institution also needs an inner life, a place where it actually does its work. And I think that's especially true in Congress, which fundamentally, its work is the work of bargaining and compromise and accommodation. And there's just no such thing as bargaining in public. So that if Congress loses all of its uh, deliberative spaces, and they all become instead performative spaces, as they increasingly have, then we shouldn't be surprised that all that's really left for members to do is put on a kind of uh, theatrical performance for their uh, most devoted voters who just want to see them express frustration with the things those voters are frustrated about, too. If you go now to a congressional hearing, what you find is a lot of individual members basically producing YouTube clips to use later in campaigning. You don't find them working together on an issue. You don't find them talking to each other very much. And ultimately, Congress requires them to engage with each other. It needs to have some kind of inner life. And so what you see in Congress, which is, I think, a more exaggerated form of what we're seeing in a lot of our institutions, is that as the institution becomes completely transparent, it also becomes completely performative. And the sense that its members have of what they're supposed to do has much more to do with being seen and heard from the outside than with acting inside. And, you know, rather than pursue a microphone to get power and advance social change, they now pursue power to get a microphone and talk about social change. And that the difference between the two is a big difference. Now, you also said in your answer there that 
of course, Congress represents a more exaggerated form of uh, using institutions primarily as a performance, a mode of performance rather than um, for self-formation. Um, so this desire primarily to use institutions as this, you say, has not only affected Congress, though, but also other institutions. Can you yeah. give me an example of how this has affected other institutions, maybe in the family or even the church? Well, yeah. I mean, you can look at a number of a variety of institutions. One, one very important set of institutions where this has happened are professions and professional institutions. Uh, the book looks at journalism as an example of this, where ultimately we trust journalists, we trust professionals in general, because we believe that they're shaped to abide by a certain set of standards and uh, and, and, and ideals and an idea of integrity fundamentally, and that by following a certain set of rules, they arrive at information we can trust. Um, today, you find a lot of political reporters taking themselves out of that process, out of the institutions they're part of, and placing themselves individually uh, on a platform on social media or on cable news, building their own brand, their own following, um, but in a way that blurs the line between their professional work product and their personal views. And so by pursuing an expressive idea of what their work is supposed to be, um, they make it very hard to trust them as professionals. I think you find something similar happening in some respects um, in, in American civic and religious life, where institutions that are really meant to shape our souls increasingly become instead platforms for political expression. Um, for, for showing the world which, which team we're on, what party we're part of, what faction we belong to, uh, rather than for trying to appeal to people on moral terms and trying to improve people. You find something like this happening in the academy, too. Once you see the pattern, it's very powerfully evident how this is transforming a lot of institutions across the range of American life. And it's an enormous problem to uh, to anyone who thinks that the that the trust in institutions matters. Now let's touch a little bit more on that institution of religion. I couldn't write this full outline of this conversation without predictably including some reference to Alexei de Tocqueville in our conversation. So let's touch on that a bit. Um, Tocqueville was a Frenchman who made several trips to America during 1831 and 1832. And during that time, he was doing research on the American experiment and observing our way of life and the principles of its founding. During those trips, he focused a lot on how institutions strengthen our country. I'm summarizing quite a bit here, but essentially he came to believe that religion and the church played the most important role in our institutional life. Why did he think this, and would you agree with him? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Tocqueville has a lot to tell us about the nature of American institutionalism and, the, and particularly, as you say, the place of religion in American institutional life. Tocqueville took Americans to be very capable and natural institution builders, so that although our theories of ourselves tended to be very individualistic and uh, to resist the idea of mediation, the actual practice of American life, as he saw it, was very institution-minded. And he, he, he says at one point in a, in a letter that he wrote from America, though it's not in Democracy in America itself, that if you get three Americans together, they'll elect a treasurer. Um, and so this instinct for uh, institution building is just natural in us somehow. And he was especially struck, as you say, by the significance of religious institutions 
in helping to shape the, the souls and outlooks of Americans in ways that counteracted some of the worst effects of democratic life. Tocqueville is a friend of democracy, but he also sees that it has important downsides that have to be taken account of. And he thinks ultimately that by lifting our gaze uh, up above the, the material and the immediate, um, religion can help to balance some of our worst instincts as, as, uh, as small d Democrats. And, you know, I think those two ideas combine in the sense that ultimately to understand our institutions as formative is to see them as giving us the shape we need to make the most of life in a free society. Uh, and Tocqueville, better than anyone, articulated what that ought to look like in, in a society like ours. And I think a lot of the trends we find now, a kind of deformation of, of American institutions, are trends that would not exactly have shocked him. They're, in a sense, an effect of, of, the, of the continuation of the democratization process that he talked about. But I think they would have worried him particularly in American religious life, which he thought ought to be counter-pressures, counter-forces to the kinds of uh, deformations we're seeing. So basically he saw uh, the institution of the church as being maybe a primary institution where— um restraint is fostered, or at least more moral yeah, formation right. specifically? Yeah, and it can help to lift us out of the immediate and material concerns that tend to take over in democratic life, the worry about the least common denominator. Um, religion, as he put it, lifts up our heads and makes us think about the future, makes us think about the next generation, connects us to a longer-term idea of the human good. And that's just absolutely essential, particularly in a democratic society, as he understood it. That reminds me also of um, Acton's quote where he says that freedom is you know, having uh, the liberty to do what we ought. And I think that institutions, when healthy and uh, when performing as they should, when functioning as they should, really give us the freedom to do what we ought and shape us into moral human beings. Yeah, and those kinds of institutions are so necessary in democracy because we basically have the freedom to do whatever we choose. So we're going to do what we ought to do only if we choose to do what we ought to do. And obviously that takes education, that takes formation, and that's what many of our core institutions are for. We don't start out knowing the right way, but we can be formed to discern it over time. I think this also reflects what we think about um, who man is. You know, when we explore what the purpose of an institution should be, do we think that man needs formation or do we think he needs self-expression? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that that distinction is really at the bottom of a lot of what we think of as our culture war debates, right? The sense of whether we begin in an unformed uh, way that requires us to be formed before we can be free, or whether we begin free, where, we, you know, as Rousseau puts it, man is born free and everywhere he's in chains, what he means by the chains are the institutions of our society, and he thinks ultimately those are fundamentally oppressive, and we have to be liberated from them. Um, the other way of thinking about it is that the institutions of our society are fundamentally formative, and we are liberated by them. I think the difference between those two views has a lot to tell us about the different factions to a lot of our cultural debates now. To close, I'm going to read a quote of yours here. Uh, you say that, quote, the failures of our institutions have led us to demand they be uprooted or demolished, but we cannot address those failures without renewing and rebuilding those very institutions, unquote. So you make the case that we need to reform and build faith in our institutions or build trust in them, but at the same time, you make the strong case, you convince us why our trust has fallen. You 
proving yeah. what we probably instinctively already knew, that many politicians care more about their publicity. Many cultural leaders, so to say, see elevating themselves as outsider activists as being more important than working responsibly within the institutions in which they're placed. Um, many of us have broken families or live in communities that don't easily foster interpersonal connections. So, you know, these are things that we sometimes feel that we can't change, though. So I guess the conundrum then is where and how can we build and strengthen our institutions when it seems like uh, we don't necessarily have the power to change them or we can't change them ourselves? Yeah, I think the key to that is to begin by seeing that we need to, that we can't respond to their failures by pushing them out of the way or lifting them off us as if they were just burdens. Because they're not just burdens. They're, we actually need them. We require them in order to have a free society, which means that the fact that they are failing us in some important respects means that we need to reform them and to transform them. And that has to begin by changing our own attitudes about them and by recognizing that ultimately, in order to be responsible, we have to, we have to understand ourselves through the institutions that we're part of. And when we face a decision, we have to ask ourselves, given the, the roles that I have, the institutional roles I have, whether that's as a parent or as a teacher or as a, uh, as a member of Congress or as the President of the United States or as a worker, um, given the roles I have, what should I do here is a question that we need to relearn how to ask. We need to, to, to understand our experience through it a little more and therefore to see that ultimately these sources of responsibility and obligation are also ways of empowering and liberating ourselves. It's not an instinct that always comes naturally to us as Americans. And by starting from there, by forcing ourselves to understand our problems through that lens, we can begin to see some ways to rebuild where we are. Because all of us have some roles in some institutions. And if we start by understanding that and doing a little better at making decisions through the lens of institutional responsibility, we can gradually start to build them up. It's a small start. Uh, it's a small step, but it's one that all of us can take. And I think it's a prerequisite for larger, broader institutional reforms that could alter some of the incentives that have deformed so many of our institutions in recent years. I'm wondering, do you think that it is a minority view among both conservatives and progressives that institutions should be reformed rather than torn down? Well, at this point, I guess I'd say so. I don't think you can really be a conservative if you're hostile to institutions, but yes. there's certainly a lot of people on the American right now who are, who are very hostile to institutions. Um, to me, that means they're not exactly conservatives. Mm -hmm. they're, they're populists or uh, they're angry with the status quo. But I think ultimately to be a conservative is exactly to begin from the premise that we are fallen and unready, that we need institutions to form us and that we need to preserve those that have stood the test of time. That's what we want to conserve, after all, as conservatives. And so it worries me in particular to see uh, a, a form of the American right that is as hostile to institutions as today's has become. I think if we're going to revive and revitalize our country's institutions, uh, we have to begin on our end of the uh, political spectrum and build the case for them as absolutely essential for freedom. An essential part of this, you say, is devotion. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, devotion really in this case just means understanding ourselves through them a little more, recognizing that we can do good in the world, especially by acting through them rather than around them or on top of them. It means recognizing that 
we can draw an ideal of integrity out of the institutions we're part of, from the family and the community and religion to our professional institutions and our political institutions. It means taking them seriously and not viewing them as outsiders, not building cynical distance between us and them, but deciding what the institutions are that matter to us in our lives and really jumping in, acting as insiders. Everybody in our society wants to be an outsider. Uh, we need people to take responsibility and understand that the function of our institutions is ultimately dependent on them, on us. Well, Yuval, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is super important to me because it lets me know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most, and also how I can improve this show to make sure you're getting the most out of it. You can reach our team at actinline at actin.org, or you can call our office at 616 454 And if you like our show, you know what to do. Leave us those ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe. Act in Line is on YouTube, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 